Welcome to episode 263 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Melissa Harcrow. I'm going to be totally honest. Normally, I do the recording right after the interview, but I did write the intro. And looking at it now, I'm realizing how fired up I got after this interview. So I'm just going to read what I wrote, but just know that this episode is very powerful It really meant a lot to me that Melissa was so open and honest in sharing about her situation, and it reminded me why the podcast was so important. We need to share the stories of women. We need to share the challenges that women face, and so this is the intro that I wrote after I recorded the episode. Sometimes soldiers are forced to leave the military because of their family care plan issues. This wouldn't be a problem if the standard was enacted across the board, the same for everyone. But instead, sometimes special circumstances are allowed for some people, but not for others. This is what happened to Melissa. On her fourth deployment in just over 10 years, she had to come home because her mom was unable to take care of her children. When she couldn't go back to Afghanistan, she found herself being pushed out of the military and struggled with the transition. There's a lot more to this interview than just that, but that was the resounding point that really struck home to me and really struck a chord. And so I am really grateful again for Melissa's honesty and openness and the emotion and all the things she brought to this interview. And I hope that you can get fired up and passionate about helping to share the stories of women. And then I just want to remind you that Women of the Military podcast is on Reese Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. So now, without out of the way, let's get started with this interview with Melissa. Welcome, everyone, to Women of the Military podcast. I'm excited to have Melissa here to hear her story about her time in the military. So thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you so much for letting me come on. I really appreciate it. I'm excited. I'm excited too. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? So I really had nothing going for me. Um, I joined, well, I signed up at 17 and I had no, no money for college, no idea what I wanted to do. And a recruiter called and I really was not into joining the military, but I realized that there was really nothing else. I had no other choice. I can't live with my mom forever. And um, and then when I talked to my dad, my dad was also in the army. He told me that I should join the Air Force because his words were that it's it's easier for women. So I said, I'm joining the army then. And um, <laughs> And so that was it from there. I joined the army just because I had nothing, no skills, no education. I love that you, your dad was like, you should join the Air Force. It's better and you, for women. And he, you're like, no, I'm joining the Army. <laughs> That's just so funny. He's like, no, I'm trying to help you out. And you're like, no, I can do it. I know. Yeah. I guess that's my first real taste of some, some misogyny, huh? <laughs> yeah. So you headed off to basic training. You said you were 17. So did you graduate high school and then go or what was that process like? I left uh, a month after high school. So when I signed at 17, it was the delayed entry program. And then I left about a month afterwards. So I was 18 in boot camp. And what was that experience like going to boot camp straight out of high school and starting your career? 
looking back, I mean, it's been 20 years, so I don't think I really fully comprehended it then. It was just something I was doing and, and just going through the motions. And it was a bit of a culture shock because I was introduced to different kinds of people, different characteristics, different foods even. Like at the dining facility, I had no idea what okra was, but I really did enjoy basic training. I wasn't always on my best behavior, but I learned my lessons and I, I graduated and was stationed at uh, what's now uh, Fort Cavazos. It was Fort Hood. I love you talking about the food because I had grits for the first time when I went to my uh, basic training and I was like, what are these things? <laughs> and like, they're a staple of the South, but I grew up in California and I had never been exposed to that kind of food. And it was just like, what is this? Yeah, I had the same thing with grits too. That's another one. I was like, what is grits? What is that? Why do people love it so much? And then they were like, you have to do this and that. And I was like, okay, I'm just trying to eat the food as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah, right. You don't have time to taste your food. So yeah, it sounds like overall it was a good experience and you got to experience new cultures and, you know, new things. And then you went to, um, is Fort Court Carabasta? Cavazos. 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 That's in Texas, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So what was that experience like? And what, did you go to AIT first? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yes. AIT at Fort Lee, which I don't remember what they changed the name to, but I went there and I became a unit supply specialist. And then I went to Fort Cavazos and then... So I had joined in 2002, and then by March of 2003, we left to Iraq. Well, actually April, not, not March. That's when, that's when that happened, and then we left in the beginning of April. So it sounds like it was like pretty quickly. You joined, you went to basic, you did your tech school, and then you know less than a year later, you were already heading off to Iraq. So... What was that experience like? Were you in Kuwait for a while before you went into Iraq? Yes, we were in Kuwait. I was, and I ended up staying behind for, so I was there a total of two months while everyone else convoyed up and got our area set up. And then we were like the, the, the trailing party. You know, again, it's it was more of like going through the motions. I, I wasn't married. I didn't have a fiance. I had no kids. I'm 18 years old about to be 19 and, you know, in a whole other country. And um, I just remember it being very hot. And driving into Kuwait was horrendous with the heat and full battle rattle, all your gear on. And um, being, in, being in Iraq when everything just first started, just um, it was just so different. I remember we had a very tiny PX and people would wait in line for two hours to get into the PX. We could only take three minute showers. We, we, I didn't use the quartermaster laundry. So I washed my own uniforms and they only gave you two. And it was just a lot of, uh, I guess, survival mode in a combat zone, you know, <laughs> just having to deal, uh, you don't have as much, um, you know, we have a washing machine here. We have good food here. You know, we didn't have that in the beginning. 
it was very different, but I had no issues going through it. It was just like, I'm here. Whenever you tell me to go back home, I'll go back home. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear about the startup of the war because by the time I got to Afghanistan in 2010 and I went to Bagram, it was this huge base and like, you know, it was like its own little city. And then we were stationed out at a FOB, but even then the FOB was established. We had a bunch of washing machines and, you know, a morale tent and everything was established. So we had everything that we needed that we could have asked for. But hearing stories from people who are in Iraq right in the beginning, it was, I mean, obviously all that stuff had to be built over time. It wasn't just there. Mm-hmm. Yes. You said you were a supply specialist, or did I just make that up? Yes, no, I was a unit supply specialist. So what were you guys doing when you were in Iraq? Were you like routing the supplies? How, what exactly were you doing as a supply specialist? So um, in Kuwait, we had, um, don't, I don't even know how we got it, but we had gotten a bunch of um, decontamination material and we were issuing it out to those units that were heading up into Iraq. And so as a, as a private, I really didn't understand exactly what was going on, who it was that we were supporting. So it was like, just, you know, I'm being told what to do, that's what I'm doing. And in Kuwait, yeah, that was pretty much most of what I did. Um, and I did guard duty as well, uh, gate guard. And then in Iraq, really all I did was, um, Every other day I, I burned human waste and then, yeah. And then in the evening time I was on, um, guard duty overnight and then the next day I was off and then the next day is just start that all over again. So that was routine. That is not what I expected you to say. <laughs> you were like, I was like supply, you do supply things. It's like, uh, that's not really under the job description I was expecting. So I mean, that's a job that is not probably fun to do, but someone has to do it, and it's an important job. Yeah. And the PACT Act just passed, you know, in 2022, because so many people had to do jobs like that and were affected by the chemicals and that sort of thing. Yes. And I also, I forgot to mention, like, whenever someone needed a driver, I was always the driver. I was driving the Humvees off base or wherever it was that they needed. I was pretty much you know, private your tasks to do whatever it is they tell you to do. And that's, that's what I had to do. <laughs> you are the jack of all trades. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it still like blows my mind that in the beginning of the war that people drove around in Humvees because by the time I got there, they had MRAPs and they were like these giant, huge, you know, like monster trucks. And then we trained with Humvees and then to learn from the podcast that people like were trying to put sandbags down, trying to protect themselves. And I'm like, what the heck? Yeah, we had sandbags inside them to help in case we ended up running over an IED. I guess somehow that's supposed to help. I don't know if it really worked. I just did. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to help with the shrapnel, but I mean, it's still it's a sandbag. It's not supposed to help but how much does it actually help and more is like a mental you know support of like we have to do something to protect ourselves let's do this and so but it's just crazy like to a me. placebo effect yeah 
I mean, I don't know for sure. Maybe it did save lives, and hopefully it did. But sometimes hearing some of the things that they did, it kind of felt like it was to help you, like, mentally of, like, you got to protect yourself somehow. These are the tools we have available. And then that's why they, you know, started making MRAPs. But then the bombs just got bigger, and it just was a cascading effect. So how long were you in Iraq? You said you were there in April till when did you get to come home so our tour was very short we came home in august so i it you know it led to rumors like we weren't even supposed to be here in the first place who knows i don't even know but it was it was very short but we were there for pretty much the brunt of the summer came back and i mean that was really it it was that was my first deployment i already had my first one under my belt yeah, I mean, that's really short, especially at that time, like people were doing 12, 15 months and you're like, we're home by the end of the summer. And I could see how it caused like rumors of like, did they really need us? Did we really need to be there? Because they sent you home so much earlier than probably you guys expected. Right, exactly. So you came back to the base or not the base, the fort. I'm sorry, I went all Air Force on you. And... <laughs> And then uh, what did you guys do? You like transitioned back to being home and getting back into your normal job. Was that what happened or was there something else? Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Well, shortly after that, I was I was pregnant. So I was going to become a single mom and I had my daughter in August of uh, 2004. Um, so I had to adjust to that being a single mom and an active duty military and then when she was four months old i got orders for korea and then when she was eight months old that's when i left to korea and she stayed with her father back in dallas wow what was that experience like to have to say goodbye to your daughter for a year wasn't it a year yes a year yeah it was terrible Let's see when when she was born i was 19 and you know she's still just an itty bitty baby i didn't get to finish breastfeeding like i wanted to so i i was i finished at four months uh postpartum and then um to to leave her behind was very very hard and when i was in korea you know i i uh initially kept to myself a lot I'm already introverted, but there I, I really was, I felt so isolated and, um, I would, um, I didn't want to go anywhere. They wouldn't, the other soldiers would invite me places and I, I didn't want to go. It took maybe two or three months for me to start coming out of that. And then every now and then I would see little children either out in the, in the cities or even on base, you know, where people, when they get, they're lucky enough to bring their families. And that was hurtful, you know, that would make me think of, of my baby. And then um, luckily I did get to come back home for for Christmas and spend some time with her. And I mean, when I got back, she was already walking and saying a few words and she did not recognize me. And um, but she warmed up pretty quick and then had to leave again for the rest of my tour there. I think being able to come home halfway helped a little bit because now you know, okay, I'm halfway, let's get it done. Let's go back home. 
But in Korea, I also was very busy because my my non-commissioned officer, my NCO, he was very much into sending me to soldier of the month boards and getting me promoted. And so I went to a lot of boards. I studied a lot for those boards and I went to um, warrior leaders course, which is a, a, um, a non-commissioned officer school. So, and then I promoted to Sergeant there in, in Korea. I think it was right after I came back from, from uh, Christmas leave after I saw my daughter. So I was able to get through that, you know, um, of course that feeling never goes away of leaving your, your baby, but you have to find something that, um, gets you through it, a hobby or anything really. And so I'm grateful to my NCO for that. Although I don't think that was his purpose. Um, and I did not like him for it. I hated going to the boards. It's something I was good at. And I think he saw something in me and really pushed me into that. Yeah, that's that's great that he was able to push you and that you were able to get, you know, those classes done and then get promoted and move up rank. And it kept you busy, helped you keep your mind off things. But it I mean, it's funny. You're like, I did not want to do it, but he kept making me do it. And so um, that's that's good that he like saw potential in you and then pushed you and helped you to, you know, hit those milestones in what was going to be a hard year anyways, but you know, he gave you something to focus on. So I, I want to talk about like, cause people think, you know, today you could, if you were in Korea, you would have a cell phone and you could FaceTime or, you know, use something like Skype, you could keep in, you like, pretty fairly good communication. But in 2004, 2005, the technology was not what it is today. And so were you able to communicate while you were in Korea with your daughter while she was left behind? Uh, yeah, I had, um, oh, I think it was called Vonage. I don't know if that's still around, but it's a phone that was connected, I think it was through the internet. So I had that in my room and then I did have a, a cell phone, but it was one of those flip phones and you have to buy cards to put minutes on it. And I definitely didn't use that as much for overseas because it would eat up your minutes real quick. So that was more for in-country. And I don't remember doing any kind of um, video calls with her because her, her dad did not have internet and I don't think he would have even known how to use a computer, really. So I just remember that. I remember he would ha he had a camcorder, so he would record her. But he didn't have, you know, a smartphone where he could record her. You know, no way to, like, send me pictures and instantly send them to me or videos. So I think I probably called maybe once or twice a week to to talk to her. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I don't even think that the first iPhone was out yet. Just a reminder that we're old, right? <laughs> just like, just remember you're old. <laughs> oh, I understand. Yeah, my husband commissioned a year before me. And so we were separated for my last year of college. And we only talked on the phone. We didn't like have, you know, and that was 2006 to 2007. So we that was how we communicated was the phone because there wasn't any real other option and there wasn't so that definitely wasn't in 2004 2005 time frame 
technology's changed a lot in such a short period of time. I think that's why it's important to like talk about it because people are like, this is the way it's always been. And it's like, no, it's only been this way, you know, for a short period of time. Because even when I was deployed in 2010, we didn't have Wi-Fi. Nobody really had smartphones. It was, it's very different now. For sure. It is. It is. They got it so lucky now. <laughs> they don't know what it's like. I know. So you were in Korea for a year. You got that little break in the middle and come home. And then you got promoted to sergeant and then you came back. And what was that transition back like? And did you go back to Texas or did you go somewhere else? Yes, I re-enlisted to go back to Fort Bliss, which is um, in Texas, El Paso, Texas, where I'm from. And I got my daughter um, from Dallas, came back home to, to Fort Bliss and was back to being a, a single mom again. And that was good. I went to, I was, of course, I was still a unit supply specialist, but I went up to what's called the property book office. And that's where we maintain records of all the, the government property that's assigned in our, in our units. And um, I really enjoyed it, but I ended up having conflict with a soldier and with my boss and um, out of retaliation, unfortunately, my boss sent me to replace another uh, non-commissioned officer who was deployed to Qatar with one of our battalions. So I ended up going to replace her. I think by that time, uh, yes, by that time I was already a staff sergeant. So then I had to go deploy again. So it was less than a year from uh, returning from Korea and I was, I was deployed again to Qatar for a year. Wow. That must have been so hard. So what were the emotions? And like, these are like the really hard stories to hear because like the army had such a high ops tempo and people were just deploying like left and right. And then, you know, and then as a single mom, like that would be so hard. I mean, it's hard as a parent, I think in general, but like that, that just sounds so hard. And like, you weren't even home for the amount of time that you were gone. And then it was time to leave again for another year. So that must have been really hard. It was. It really was. And, and it, the emotions were anger because, you know, I understand that we're, we're not getting along. But this was absolutely retaliation. Opportunity came up and she saw a way to send me out and did it without second thought. I had no way to fight it. So, and then again, um, now I have to get everything in order again. Now, so now my mom's going to be the one to take care of my daughter. I had to move her in with me to make things easier. I had to get, you know, power of attorney, get her, um, this is where her daycare is. That's how this, so she's basically going to be mom to my daughter while she's working full time. And, um, my poor baby, now I got to leave her again. So, but the wonderful thing that came out of that was the, on that deployment, the unit that I joined, that's where I met my husband. So he was in that unit and things started from there. And, and I mean, we've been married uh, 14 years now, 14, 14 years now. Well, at least one good thing came out of it. I'm, it's like it was a retaliation and you ended up there, but then you ended up meeting your husband and you guys are still married 14 years. Congratulations. That's 
quite the accomplishment. So many people, especially military, it's so hard. So I'm glad that that came out of it and that you were able to find your person overseas mm-hmm. on a deployment, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, never thought that would happen. <laughs> I'm a hopeless romantic, so I'm like, I could hear all the stories about how it all worked out. But I love, I love hearing that 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 happened because it it's that's really special and that you were able to find your person overseas and in such a really hard situation being away and having to deal with that so the technology hadn't really changed that much in a year or two so were you still mainly phone calls or was skype a thing yet or how did you communicate back i was using um yahoo messenger but the only place for internet was There was like a central location for the internet, but that hardly ever worked. And so that would be frustrating. I would sit there for hours just trying to get the internet to work and then it would finally work. And then my daughter couldn't hear me or something. I remember one time she started crying because she couldn't hear me, you know, and it's hard because I can't help her and seeing her cry. And then, um, but I would use the phone. We had like an area for the phones too. So that was mostly it. So Yahoo Messenger and and the regular phone, but internet was very unreliable. That makes sense. The world has changed a lot when it comes to the internet. And your mom, you said she was working full time and taking care of her. And so how did your mom do with the whole, you know, the extra duties of taking care of your daughter? Oh, she had a hard time. I mean, my daughter is always pretty good, thankfully, and I didn't mention that um, at that time, my brother was still in high school, so she was also a single mom taking care of her granddaughter and being a full-time employee, so I'm sure it was very, very hard for her, to be honest. We didn't, we haven't really talked a whole lot about that, but I think she was just more than happy to help and, and to be there for my daughter. And just, you know, a little difficult, but I think her work was also very, um, thankfully, very um, understanding if she had to leave early or if she, you know, she had to be gone by a certain time to pick up my daughter for daycare or anything like that. So that time she, she didn't have a too bad of an experience. But it sounds like you guys, you deployed again. (laughs) Is that you? Another, you're like, that's the story. Lots and lots of deployments. Yeah, <laughs> it's about two years later, two years. And where did you go for that one? Uh, Qatar again, because our battalion is one of those air defense artillery battalions that's over there, that's been there. So we would do rotations there. So when I met my husband, it was the deployment was 2007 and 2008, and then come back, and then we got married. I, I, um, went through went through more schooling um then we deployed again we deployed together 2010 same thing to qatar um, but we were in two different bases not too far away from each other yeah so that time i had my own home then and that time i think so that's when my daughter was in school so i think maybe it was a little bit more difficult for my mom but she wasn't working anymore at that time Yeah, it gets, I mean, it's hard in, like, the caregiving stage when they're really little, but then the problems as they get older 
get harder and harder. And especially if you're not, you're the grandma sitting in for the mom and dad, like that, that makes it even a harder dynamic. So that makes sense. Yes. So how long did you end up staying in the military? I did 12 years altogether. And 12 years is a long time, especially because, you know, at the time of retirement was 20 years. So why did you decide to get out of the military at 12 years? So this was actually 2013 was that was my fourth deployment. So that's that was to Afghanistan to Bagram. And my husband and I, I deployed first. And then two months later, he deployed with his unit to, to Afghanistan also. And so this time again, um, my mom is taking care of, of my daughter, but now we're living in Tennessee. So that's where we were stationed or, or excuse me, Kentucky. And then we also had a son. So you have my um, eight-year-old daughter and then barely one-year-old son, seven months old when I left. And then um, she had a very hard time. And she was already going through anxiety and, and some other um, mental health issues. And she ended up having a breakdown. And our neighbor ended up taking our kids while I went home on emergency leave. And my mom was the only person we absolutely trust with our kids. Um, we don't have, you know, a whole bunch of friends that can take care of our kids for a year. We don't have... And we're not going to trust a perfect stranger to do that either while we're a world away. Yeah, I mean, so many deployments and with little kids and then, you know, your mom, that I mean, it's a lot of challenge and stress. And so so when you came home from a, a, for emergency leave, did you end up going back to Afghanistan or did you stay home and then get out of the military? So initially they told me... Um, put together a family care plan. I think, I think my immediate command was trying to help a family care plan and you won't have to, you know, you won't have to come back, just show that you, you have a care plan. So I did that. I had actually my brother and, and my sister-in-law sign, which I know they would help, but I, we didn't trust them to do long-term, but then it was, well, the brigade commander wants you back. And to be honest, my my job in Afghanistan was incredibly boring. I was twiddling my thumbs most of the time. Um, it really didn't. I really didn't have a, a huge workload. Back here in the rear, I did. So I absolutely could have done my job back here if that's something they wanted to do to try to accommodate the situation. And I know they did accommodate the situation for a couple of other soldiers, but. I guess for me, somehow I was the exception. So it took about a year from then. Um, this happened, everything happened around July, 2013. And by the end of June, 2014, I was discharged from the army. It's really sad to hear that like, sometimes they make exceptions and work with people and then other times they don't. And obviously you, you had a family care plan, you had your mom and then, you know, life happened and she couldn't take care of your kids and then to not you know work with you and for you to know that there were some people who were getting exceptions and other people who weren't it's really sad and frustrating that sometimes that happens and it's 
also frustrating because it's a discretion of like you know the the general in charge and not like yeah and or the leadership or whoever but it's not it's not a fair thing it's like oh we'll do this for you we'll do and then to, to be at 12 years and you're you're planning to stay in and then having to be forced to leave to take care of your family which is really it's really hard yeah exactly yeah and and looking back at the time i didn't realize it but i would think why did why did i feel like i had to be the one to come home and why did i take that brunt of the responsibility like my husband even offered to go home and be the one to get discharged I was like, no, no, no. And I, I, I guess I felt like a yes because it's my mom. But I think mostly because I'm the woman, because I'm the mom, you know, and we're the caregivers in, in our society, at least. And, you know, that's very sad because later I learned there's no data on officers, but that oh, in since I want to say it was fiscal year 2006 to fiscal year 2017, over 10,000 enlisted army women were discharged due to family care plan issues. So that was a huge shock. So I just thought, I mean, that's clear, it's clearly gender. And I know the other people who got exceptions, they were men. So was that coincidental or is it something ingrained in the back of, of their minds? as it was with mine, with why I felt I was responsible for coming back home. Yeah, you bring up, I mean, some really good points of how, I mean, the first time someone was like, why did you get out and not your husband? And I was like, oh, that, that's a good question. It never really was a conversation of like, who's going to get out and who's going to stay in, which is crazy because, you know, now I'm like, why wasn't it? But the whole plan was like, you're going to get out and stay with the kids. So, you know, why would, why would I? And so it's just, we kind of have like these cultural norms and things that where even though your husband offered to go back, you were like, no, it's my responsibility. And I think as women, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves that we have to like do it all. Don't show weakness, be able to take care of everything, take care of our family, take care of the our career. And so it makes sense that you would be like, no, 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 I need to do it. And you had all the reasons why, even though he offered to do it. So, and it's, even more frustrating to hear that the exceptions were for men and that for you, a woman, you were, you felt discriminated against and you were discriminated against because possibly because of your gender. I think that's one of the challenges the military has. I just got a message on LinkedIn from someone who is in the army today and she talked about how this report came out and all these problems and then they had this like all call and they were like, everything's fine. And she's like, I don't feel heard. I don't feel seen. I'm really frustrated. And so she, she thanked me. It was really nice. She thanked me for the work I'm doing. And I was like, thank you. I really need to hear that. But I also, we need to talk more about these type of issues because I mean, it happened when you were in, but it's still happening today. And we need to make sure that women are supported and that I mean, we've shown how important, just through the podcast, how important women are to the military. I've learned so much history and I've heard so many stories, but then you hear stories like this where you're not appreciated and like that when you were in Korea, your NCO saw something in you and then to have your light snuffed out because 
you had to choose your family is really sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got a little passionate there. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. It should be. So it sounds like a pretty like traumatic transition out of the military. It wasn't part of your plan and you were kind of forced out. So what was that experience like to transition out of the military? Uh, I'm going to try to get through it without tearing up because uh, I'm okay now. But um, when I talk about it, it, it is hurtful. I, I wanted to retire. 20 years. I, by that time I was, um, I had transitioned over to the warrant officer course. I was a chief warrant officer too. I wanted to be at least the chief warrant officer three or four really loved my job. Like you said, this was not in the plan. So I had such a hard time staying home with the kids, not finding a job. I applied to almost a hundred jobs. And the one job that did call me back, or actually the two jobs, was um, caregiver at a daycare and substitute teacher. And who predominantly holds those roles, right? So despite my year in, years in the military, despite all my experience, despite, I mean, I only had an associate's degree, so I get it at that time. But it was hard not, not uh, contributing financially, going from making pretty good money to nothing and then taking care of the kids all the time. And I was losing my temper with the kids, mostly my son. And I, I finally I finally reached out to, to my doctor and she told me that I was grieving, that um, I, like, like a part of me died. So I had entered, that, that was part of my fault because I had intertwined my identity so much with the military that I didn't realize I was more than that. And um, so, so she did have to put me on uh, some antidepressants for a little while. And then um, I did work at the daycare. I, I enjoyed it a little bit but it's not for me and the pay is not good so I did about a year and a half and then uh I got to a point where I didn't have to be on those the medication anymore and then we got orders to come back to to Fort Bliss and so again I have to do more job hunting and um well actually before we came before we left Fort Bliss I did get a bachelor's degree but it really still didn't really mean much, I guess. And then um, when we came to Fort Bliss, again, looking for jobs, and I got hired with the city of El Paso. And um, I enjoyed that. It was very, it was part-time. It was really, really chill. I answered constituent calls and, and emails and had to deal with them. And that that's not fun. But besides that, the environment was great. Then I moved up into the mayor's office. And um, around that time also, that was when COVID hit. And then I had joined um, Team Red, White, and Blue, which is a, a veterans nonprofit organization. I didn't realize until now, I've been with them for three years, that that really gave me a sense of purpose. The things that, that we do, our camaraderie, socials, service projects, enriching each other's lives really uh that helped me get through that so 
I want to say it took me probably about five years to, to really accept and get over what happened because even throughout those five years, I kept trying to get back in. I tried to get in through the reserve. And then I learned that when you get out with a family care plan on as an officer, you don't get that code on your DD-214. You get a code that says substandard performance. And that looks terrible. So that's probably a big reason why I didn't get jobs. And even when I tried to get back in the reserve, they declined it because of that code. So I'm thinking, the army, you're the army. You guys are the ones that give me this code. And I still have that code. I tried to fight that code and uh, with the army review uh, records board and got a very ugly letter saying that um, I was, I did a disservice to the army, even though the situation that happened was completely out of my control. And um, after that, I was, I, uh, I actually did get accepted into the reserves, the secretary of um, defense or the army, I forget which one, they signed the waiver to let me in with the code on my 214. But then I thought, no, I can't anymore. I can't continue with more deployments, with more time away with school. I mean, this is my life now and I'm happy. I'm happy. Thank you for being so open and honest and sharing about your experience. And your experience really resonated with me. And one of the things you said was it was my fault that my identity was like tied to my service. And that's, that's not your fault. That's like a byproduct of being in the military. And I think that you don't realize it until you leave and no one tells you like, hey, your identity is like, you know, tied into being in the military. Because when I left the military and I wasn't an officer and I wasn't in the Air Force and I lost a part of myself and I wrote, I did a podcast years ago, I have to go find it, about like the grief process that you go through when you leave the military because no one's talking about those things. And, you know, what you're feeling is normal and I bet it resonates with so many people, but, you know, nobody talks about those things and then you feel like, well, it must be because, you know, of my circumstances, but that's a common, you know, feeling that veterans feel of like losing who they are and you, it's RWB, red, white, and blue, uh, how you found purpose again. And so many veterans talk about like the importance of finding purpose after service because you lose that and you don't even know that it's a part of like who you are until it's not there. And then you're scrambling, trying to figure out like, what just happened? Who am I? Where am I going? And so I think your story is like really powerful because, I mean, you were hurt by the army, but then you experienced so many things at, that so many veterans feel. I felt really isolated, like, oh, it's my fault because I got out to be a stay-at-home mom and like nobody else gets out. They all are men and they're going to get jobs. And so I must have did the transition wrong and that's why. But I've had so many conversations with men and women veterans who have that same feeling of like loss of purpose and you know loss of identity and all the things you talked about so thank you so much for sharing about that and I love how you ended it on a happy note of being happy and being where you are today and just finding healing that's that's so amazing yes thank you you're so right you're so right my husband actually just retired a few days ago and I told him like you're okay now but be open. Like if you start feeling 
because yeah, you're right. I did realize that other people feel that way too. You know, I just told him just, it's okay if you, if you ever find yourself feeling the way I did. And he's lucky to have you because you can get him plugged in with the veteran community. You probably already have him plugged in. So he kind of already is connected. And I think for so many veterans, there's this like lull of time where you're like, I'm out of the military. I don't want to do anything with the military. And then you find out like the veteran community has like all these great organizations, resources and support and and the community that you lose when you leave the military. So he he has the bonus of having you as his wife because you're like, go do this, get plugged in. And so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully that'll help him have an easier transition. But I still think there's things that you can't really prepare for when you leave the military because your life changes in ways you don't know. Yeah, very true. Very true. We're about to run out of time. Let's end the interview with what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? Oh, man, that's a hard one. Don't fall for anything any boy tells you, any boy or any man. Whatever whatever career goals or plans you have, whether in or out of the military, stick with it. No matter who you meet, no matter where life takes you, stick with it. And um, don't be afraid or ashamed to speak up when you experience sexual harassment or assault. It's scary and it's lonely. You don't have to report the person, but talk to somebody. And I, th I think that's probably the bulk of, of what I would say. That's good advice. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for just being so open and honest. And I'm, I'm really glad we got to do this interview. So thank you so much. Thank you. Me too.